0: And we welcome you to the Wednesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. We have a busy day planned, and we're going to start with uh, Russell Johnson, who is with the music faculty at, Carth- at uh, UW Parkside. Well, he is actually with the music faculty at Carthage, at as, Carthage well. as well. Our, yes. our, our, our trumpet instructor at Carthage, but <laughs> director of jazz studies at the University of Wisconsin Parkside and uh, he is visiting uh, us uh, at the morning show for the next few minutes to talk about one of the most exciting weeks of the whole school year as far as the music department is concerned at Parkside, namely Jazz Week. And uh, jazz has been a very important part of the uh, Parkside music scene for as long as I can remember, for as long as I've been around here, and uh, certainly even before uh, Russell Johnson came on the scene. Uh, But he has taken something that was... uh, Built into something truly great, by among other people uh, the the uh, late great tim bell and uh, and continued it on into uh, into still still more greatness. And uh, next week will be Jazz Week at Parkside. And so uh, Professor Johnson is here to talk about uh, all that is being offered to the public, including some really, really uh, exciting events. Uh, Russell Johnson, we welcome you back to The Morning Show.
1: Thanks for having me, Greg. How long have you been at Parkside now? Uh, It's actually 10 years. I started. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, which is hard to believe. uh, the aforementioned late great Tim Bell uh retired mid year in twenty ten I think his accountant told him that was the right time mm. <laughs> <laughs> so uh um, I was still living in New York at the time and and uh and I ended up uh starting in January of twenty ten and I commuted from New York for a year and a half before uh before moving my family here so i've been been there ten years
0: wow uh not that this is the primary reason you're here, but uh for the sake of somebody who does not quite understand your background mm-hmm. and who you are and the p- impressive credentials that you bring to the job. Uh, just sketch for our listeners uh, the really rich musical life you had before com- coming to Parkside. Sure. Um, I, this is not what I
1: would recommend, but I, 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 I dropped out of school at 19. Um, I, I attended Parkside under Tim Bell, and I'm very thankful for that. And then I went to Berkeley in Boston Um and my parents didn't have uh, the money to afford that, and I didn't have the money to afford Berkeley. Mm. So I kind of uh, dropped out, floated around for a couple of years. I eventually moved to New York in my early 20s when I was 22, um, and I lived there until uh, – so that was 1988, just about turned 23, and I was there until 2011. Um, mm. You know, I I made my career as somebody who um, – Kind of, you know, I mean I'm a jazz musician, I'm a composer but I've, I also did some commercial music I did some film work, I did some um, commercial, literal, literal commercial jingles um, I did all kinds of things, when you first move to New York it's always the struggle, how do you pay your bills so I did whatever I had to do to pay my bills musically, never had a day job hmm. thankfully Wow. <laughs> I, you know, until I started at Parkside at age 45 I, I, I did not have a day job from 19 to 45 other than playing my trumpet Wow, so.
0: and there's not very many people who can say that
1: <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know, it's, it's it's all, it's all as always it's a product of hard work and and, and perseverance in many ways Very so I, I yeah i was in new york for for twenty three years and creating my own music managed to tour globally um work with a quite a few really famous jazz musicians but yet have my own um my own voice as a as a composer and instrumentalist as well
0: fantastic well the uh transition to parkside has been uh amazingly seamless at least as far as i can tell <laughs> and uh uh what has this been like this new chapter uh, in your professional life?
1: You know, it's been it's been great. I I grew up in Racine. I feel like um I kind of know these kids. Mm. I know who they are. So it for me it wasn't, you know, coming from New York it wasn't a huge transition because of my upbringing upbringing, excuse me, here. So I feel like I've I, you know, I have kind of a handle on on who these kids are. Mm. Um I mean, it's honestly you know, My predecessor, Tim Bell, had such an amazing impact on the community, and he had an amazing library of music at Parkside. Um, So that allowed me to kind of get started right away. (laughs) Um, And then I've been just basically trying to, you know, I guess put my vision out there of what the music is today in 2020 you know um, i think it's important as all, all arts uh, evolve and i want to keep evolving with the time so for me it's it's just a matter of trying to uh, for myself to stay updated with what's happening and then try and bring what's happening now to the to the musicians we have at parkside today
0: mm. So before we talk about all that is being offered next week uh, in terms of Jazz Week, Mm -hmm. uh, I think it would be interesting for our listeners to hear a little bit about what it means to study jazz, and maybe more specifically also what it means to study jazz at the University of Wisconsin Parkside. First of all, is that Sort of an official degree or an emphasis within your music major that is available, and and if so, what does it entail? So it's uh, technically it's
1: called a concentration. So you can get a music performance degree, and then you can take a concentration in jazz studies. Um, and you know, it's it's funny. I was looking at the the catalogs for other. Uh, University of Wisconsin System Schools. And honestly, our program um is a little more in depth than than some of the others. Hmm. Than most that I should say the the coursework's actually um more challenging, I would say, than than all of the others. If you're wow. if you're in the jazz studies program, you take four different semesters of jazz theory, you take a jazz arranging course, a jazz history course, um a course called Styles and Analysis. So it's quite an in-depth um concentration. Mm-hmm. Um and I'll just say this. The faculty we have is truly, truly outstanding. Um, the saxophone instructor is is Chris Madsen, one of the busiest guys in Chicago. Yeah. Um, James Sodkey, the piano instructor, has been in this area forever and is an amazing musician. Tim Ibsen, a Kenosha uh, uh, native uh, who was in Chicago for many years, moved back, is teaching bass. Dave Bayless on drums. Um, he's... I would say the workingest drummer in the state of Wisconsin. He's been in Milwaukee forever, and, and yeah, the faculty is truly, truly outstanding.
0: Mm. Uh, do you find that uh, young musicians, when they come to you, uh, do they even have the f- vaguest idea of what it means to study jazz? I ask that because uh, jazz is one of those things that I think is easily misunderstood, perhaps even by those who practice it you know as youngsters uh but i think a lot of people operate under this misconception that the whole point of jazz is in a sense not knowing anything Mm -hmm. or not trying to do anything real specific but just kind of letting things spontaneously happen which of course is is a real misunderstanding of 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 the art form
1: 100 percent. and i've had (laughs) i've had uh uh, to go to bat for my music on several occasions including mm. amongst colleagues um, there is there's is a misconception about about the music um, this is black american music it's african-american music the culture of this music developed in new orleans um, the music is rhythmically solely comes from african musical traditions um, there's western influence and harmony um the answer to your first question was no. I don't believe my students have an understanding when they really start to 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 dive into it. Uh, it's an incredibly rich and deep musical culture that, if you if you want to play it well, like anything, you have to understand the basic building blocks of music. And in some ways, I think you have to understand them more. I, for people that grow up uh, learning classical music, pianists and, and such, oftentimes, and, and horn players as well. They often they're they're so used to reading all of the time mm-hmm. that they don't actually see the harmony that they're playing mm-hmm. they're just notes on a page and in in jazz music you have to put the fundamental and high level understanding of harmony into immediate action so you're you're you have the same chord structures that Bach played mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there it's i mean harmony is harmony c e g in most cultures, is a C major triad, no matter what type of music you're playing, so you have to have this understanding I, I would say actually on a deeper level than than somebody who's only reading music all the time, because mm-hmm. when you're asked to improvise, which is a huge part of the culture, you have to put this practice of understanding harmony in depth into real time practice and right. that's that's a, an enormous challenge and and I, I oftentimes I feel like you know people that are first approaching this music. I think yeah, well, you're just making up it as you go as you go along, and and there is there is a grain of truth to that, but it's <laughs> it's one grain out of a, a pile of sand with many. <laughs> I have to remember that one. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good
0: image, a yeah, very very good image. So, for those of you just joining us, Russell Johnson is with us for part one of today's morning show. He is director of jazz studies at UW Parkside, and next week is Jazz Week, and that means Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday evenings there are performances at parkside most of which are free and uh which are open to the public to enjoy so talk us through what i know uh, is as far as you're concerned a really really exciting lineup it's it's um i'm very very fortunate
1: um i'm able to call on a lot of favors from friends that are uh, uh. in the business um one of the ways that we make this happen, these are all internationally known artists, and I, I mean that internationally known. They all tour globally. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm able to call in favors. I'm friends with some of them um, from my time in New York or my playing in Chicago. And uh, for me, it's it's really an opportunity to present world-class music to the Kenosha and Racine public and mostly at no charge, which is – Really amazing. I mean, we want to get as many people on campus as we can, into the Rita as we can, into Bedford Hall as we can, and promote our department. Um, one of the things that's truly special to me is that is um, for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we the artists that we bring in will do a one hour performance, and then we do a forty five to fifty minute Q and A afterwards. And and Ooh. I feel like my students. Get so much out of that. Maybe even sometimes more than the performance, because they get <laughs> because they get to ask questions of these incredible artists, and you know, as artists are want to do, they don't always provide easy, convenient answers. Right. Mm, I mean, I think yeah. the, I think the conversation is is pointed. I think it's radical in some ways. I think it's. Um, like I said, it's 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 insight into the artistic process, um, and no two artist's process is the same, and that's really a beautiful thing. Um, this year, it's funny. I you know I'm a trumpet player myself, and this year I have several on the on the on the on the docket. But in, huh. the, in past years, I probably haven't had as many trumpet player band leaders. But, oh, okay. Um, but yeah, it's 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 an amazing opportunity for our students and for the general public uh, and one of the, the amazing things that's happened is every year the uh the attendance has grown. Um it's been yeah, it's been really fantastic. Mm, yeah. Fabulous.
0: I know that you're especially excited about uh one group that is coming in that I must confess I I am not a with it all but then again i'm not a connoisseur of jazz whatsoever mm-hmm. so but uh i know one of my voice <laughs> students who's one of your trumpet students is over the moon excited that the bad plus is coming right so tell us uh why we should all be excited about
1: this. well that's uh so the bad plus is uh, you know the, the big jazz magazine is called downbeat and the bad plus is one every kind of award you can win in in all the downbeat categories. Band of the Year, Artist of the Year, Record of the Year. They're, they're, um, They're a group that tours constantly. Um it features Orrin Evans on piano, Reed Anderson on bass, and Dave King on drums. Um and they kind of they've been around Orin is the Orrin Evans, the pianist, is a fairly recent edition of the last couple of years. Before that it was a pianist named Ethan Iverson. And hmm. back in the late nineties and early two thousands, um they were one of the first jazz groups to really kind of incorporate, for lack of a better word, pop tunes, current pop tunes into their repertoire. So it's it's a you know and it's still you know, follows the jazz aesthetic. There's tons of improvisation, but they they do, you know, sometimes incorporate some popular tunes. Um, and li- like I said, they, they travel, you know, they are constantly touring. And honestly, like I said, I would say that about all of the artists that we have. Um, on Monday night, we have Jamie Branch and Flyer Die. Jamie's a, a trumpet player who's living in New York um who's was in chicago for for many years and and she has just over the last two years three years just kind of exploded her her popularity has exploded um now she's always been a great musician just sometimes it takes you know mm. <laughs> it takes for somebody to catch on and kind of promote it um tuesday has been lamar gay a cornet player and, and vocalist from from chicago um I play with Ben pretty regularly in, in uh in the saxophonist Greg Wards group. And the the thing I'll say about Ben is everything he does is musical. Walking is musical, hmm. talking is musical. I don't mm-hmm. think I don't think he can exist without being musical. Um and his his music is very eclectic. Uh Marquise Hill is Wednesday evening's concert and Marquise is – I mean, I I don't know if I can say favorite. Uh, I don't, you know, there, I love a lot of musicians. Marquise is one of the heaviest musicians on the planet right now. Mm. He's 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 absolutely amazing, and a friend I play with him in, in different contexts as well. Um, and then Saturday night we have uh, a great guitarist from Los Angeles named Bruce Foreman coming in, and uh, the Southeast Wisconsin Hearing Center is sponsoring that that event mm-hmm. so um and then uh, friday we have the uw parkside jazz ensembles we're bringing in uh three racine schools i alternate every other year racine and kenosha schools mm. uh, this year is racine school so park uh my alma mater ah. uh, horlick and case will be in along with oak creek high school and then friday at noon we also have a uw parkside faculty concert as well the only ticketed concerts are uh the Thursday evening and Friday evening so that's the bad plus and then the Friday evening with the 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 jazz
0: ensemble are are these performances all in uh, the Francis Bedford recital hall
1: they are all in the recital hall yeah,
0: yeah. now that is you know of course one of the most beautiful uh, performing spaces in all of southeastern wisconsin uh but i'm just trying to imagine what jazz is like in there does it work pretty well it, for that in, you
1: know i'm not sure the name of the acoustician who designed the hall uh but whomever that was did a fantastic job mm-hmm. um it, it, it is an incredible hall it sounds great for choirs it sounds great for orchestra um but the the magic of of that space is they actually you you can adjust baffling and you can adjust curtains so that you can really kind of deaden the room because mm-hmm. if it if it's too live if you had the same setting for a choir concert on a jazz concert um the sounds would just be bouncing all over the room but um with the you know fortunate way that the hall was designed we can actually deaden that so actually jazz groups sound fantastic in there
0: hmm. yeah well that's really good to hear and uh and uh we trust that a lot of people are going to seek this out so i suppose as you're reaching out to past colleagues and friends sure. and so on a lot of what determines the lineup of a given year's jazz week the in terms of the lineup of artists has a lot to do with what their busy schedules will accommodate and who happens to be free one that, night during Jazz Week?
1: That is 100% accurate. <laughs> um, you know, and, and what I usually do in the fall is I put out emails to friends or colleagues and say, hey, if you're on the road in March, let me know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, the way it works with a lot of these artists is – the way it works for almost every artist, and, and I've been a touring artist for many years, is you need that one – big gig that pays that's your anchor gig and then Mm. you fill in around it so if you're you know um on a monday night or a tuesday night or wednesday night and and you can fill it in you're happy to do so so yeah i mean it's 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 a matter of of routing for a lot of these musicians um and it's you know this can be this can be you know a great a great event to play on a on, on what might be considered an off night. So that's one of the ways I'm able to really bring in um, these incredible artists. And and this year, like bringing in the Bad Plus, and, and actually Marquise, um, the Dean of the College of Arts and Humanities, Leslie Walker, uh, Dr. Leslie Walker, has really been Um, exceptionally helpful in raising funds for the for the uh, for the events it's not easy my students um, i also owe a great debt to the uline um, corporation they uh, my students actually go to their uh, headquarters four times a year and perform concerts um, at the headquarters and uh, uline then makes a a contribution to our uh music, specifically the jazz department and then my that's how i fund this because i i wouldn't be able to do it as everybody knows budgets are tight everywhere i wouldn't be able to do it with a budget that i receive so um yeah there are a lot of people to thank when it comes to <laughs> to making this week happen
0: yeah so what would you point to as the the major benefit of doing this i mean uh anything beyond the obvious
1: well i mean the obvious uh, is obvious for a reason it's uh, it, well i mean i
0: get to i get to
1: to hear all this amazing music and that inspires me uh it's it's really it's student and both student and community based uh for my students um I mean, we're we're pretty fortunate. We can drive an hour and be in Chicago, drive forty minutes and be in Milwaukee, and and they can go hear some amazing music. But it's not like living in New York, where you have these artists playing every night. Hmm. So it's an it's really an opportunity for my students. Again, the the, the Q and A at the end of these sessions is extremely important. Um, my every I, I every uh, rehearsal I have after this week, I talk to my students and I bring up the topics that are brought up. And they get so much from, from really listening to these artists talk not only about their craft, but what it's like to make a living as a musician, the challenges that come with that, the uh, incredible, you know, opportunities you get to travel. Um, so it's really – it's it, and plus, um, you know, it's an amazing uh, opportunity for Kenosha and Racine residents to hear world-class music at, like, the bad plus – we're, that that's a ten dollar ticket five dollars for students I guarantee you there's no place on the planet that you're <laughs> hearing that band for ten dollars that does that doesn't exist if you were to go hear them at a club in New York you'd pay sixty plus thirty dollar drink minimum you wow know? so it's it's one of those things where it's really an opportunity for for um, for our communities to, to experience this incredible music wonderful yeah
0: so if people want more information about all that's being offered with with uh, UW-Parkside's Jazz Week, Mm -hmm. Uh, what's the best way for them to seek out more specifics?
1: UWP.edu backslash jazz. That has all of the information. Uh, It has artist bios. uh, It has the complete schedule. Um, That should get you all the information you need to know.
0: Fantastic. Russell Johnson is Director of Jazz Studies at the the University of Wisconsin-Parkside and once again he has put together uh, a stellar lineup for Parkside's Jazz Week which is next week beginning uh, on Monday evening and free public performances Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday evening in Francis Bedford Recital Hall Thursday the big headliner the Bad Plus UW Parkside's own jazz ensemble with Racine Area High School and Oak Creek High School mm-hmm. uh, jazz musicians on Friday night and Guitarist Bruce Foreman finishes things out on Saturday evening. And again, you can go to uwp.edu for more information. Russ Johnson, thank you so much. Uh, congratulations on what sounds like a magnificent jazz week coming up. And thanks for being part of the morning show today to tell us about it.
1: Thank you so much, Greg. I appreciate being able to talk about the music and with somebody who is so knowledgeable. <laughs> so thank you.
0: You're listening to The Morning Show on W G T D H D, your gateway to public radio. I'm Gregory Berg. And for this portion of WGTD's morning show, I'm happy to welcome back to the program Steve Musenden, who is Executive Director of the Racine Literacy Council. And uh, we have uh, talked with Steve on a number of different occasions about the really good work of the Racine Literacy Council, and uh, they have a very big event that is coming up on the 21st of March that we want to uh, talk about. Uh, But first, Steve Musenden, we welcome you back to the program.
2: Great. Thank you very much, Greg. Um, As always, it's a pleasure speaking with you, and um, I look forward to our conversation.
0: Uh, So this is, uh, I suppose, uh, there's no particular season where things are especially busy all year round. I mean, there are always people knocking on your door uh, wanting to... uh, Uh, Access the services that are offered by the Racine Literacy Council Uh, How are things going Uh, are you uh, managing to keep up with the demand
2: funny? You should mention that Um, it's actually um, At its peak season right now Um, right now. We're uh, gearing up we are revamping some of our programming Um, We've also added some additional services and looking for some uh, additional outreach in the community
0: so uh, what is the need right now? I mean, uh, how many people right now are you serving and and how many more people could you potentially be serving if you had even more more volunteers in your ranks?
2: Uh, more volunteers equals um, again expanded services right now um, we're looking to uh, put in a lot more a lot more groups within the literacy council um, as far as the sessions are concerned, um, and so we're ramping up for that hopefully by uh, the new fiscal year in July. We'll have everything in place, and you know we'll be running all, on all cylinders at that point. Uh, but always, there's always a need for tutors, um, and then there's always a need for volunteers at the Racine Literacy Council.
0: We should probably remind people that uh, the work of the Racine Literacy Council goes beyond the most sort of standard sense of the word. I mean, the the literacy work that you do that is the heart and soul, of course, of the Racine Literacy Council. But just remind our listeners about some of the serv- other services that you offer that go beyond just that that basic notion of of helping people, for instance, learn to read. What are some of the other things that are offered by the Literacy Council?
2: Um, right now in March, we're getting ready to kick off our citizenship class. It goes from March 18th to May 6th, uh, from six 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m., Um, That's roughly about a six- to eight-week program. Um, We also have a tutor training, which is coming up in March, March 25th. And um, one of the things that we've added, we've always had driver's education and uh, commercial driver's license testing uh, preparation at RLC. But now we have uh, it in both English and Spanish. So that's just another Uh added value to um, the services we provide.
0: About the core mission of, uh, which is of course literacy. What are the uh, the different ways in which that is offered uh, to to the public?
2: Um, when when you come into the literacy council, um, one of the things, the way the program is set up, uh, it's it's almost akin to when you have youth and trying to teach them they, you kind of force feed information to them. With adults it's totally different. Um, (laughs) While providing basic services, we have to provide something that's goal-oriented, something that's going to be relative and relatable to the student. Um, Just trying to force feed them information doesn't work, especially like I said with an adult. So we try to gear it where they both have the basic skills and what are they looking to attain? What are they looking to do? What are the, what are their goals? And how is it customized to that particular individual? And that's where we maintain that, that level of custom, customization for each of our students. So each student doesn't have the same goals. And so we address those at the RLC.
0: Wow. So uh, in those cases, are we talking about people that are tutored one-on-one and in various ways?
2: Uh, tutored one-on-one. Um, the other thing that we've noticed as of late is... We have a lot of entrepreneurs as students, and so in March, in April, we'll, we'll be starting an entrepreneurship class. Um, kind of give them the basics because they're just starting their businesses, and so that's the next facet of how, how to promote um, sustainability in the community. It, it goes reading, writing, arithmetic, financial literacy, health literacy, but for those people that want to start a business, how do you do that?
0: Wow, so if someone wants to uh Become a hairdresser and start their own business, or start their own car mechanic shop, or something. Is that that's, that's what correct? We're, and so you want to be in a position to help them have some of the basic information they need to really do that successfully. That
2: is correct. Um, uh, CDBG Community Development Block Grant last year introduced um, funding for entrepreneurs on a basic level, but a five thousand dollar grant is like a gold mine to someone just starting their own business. Yeah. So that's where it comes in hand, and they don't have access to those resources. Had I not presented that to them, they would not have been aware that those funding and those resources were available to them. Wow, wow!
0: So you're always looking for more volunteers in order to expand the services that you provide. Uh, I know that some of your volunteers uh, have a, a background in education, maybe as retired teachers or retired teachers aides, uh, but I know that it is not limited to that. I mean, it, it is, that those kind of credentials are not necessary for being a volunteer for the Literacy Council.
2: Uh, Greg, that is correct. Um, We have a wide varied uh, tenure with our tutors, Uh, most who are former educators and teachers, but uh, we provide training to the tutors um, so they can get the message, the information across uh, to the students where they feel comfortable. So it's not a prerequisite that they have to have any type of educational training in that regard. And what about the kind of
0: time commitment that it uh that it is required to be to be a, a tutor. Is there some variation or flexibility in terms of the, the kind of time that this uh demands of a of a volunteer?
2: We have some tutors that I think literally sleeps at the RLC. I mean <laughs> <laughs> I see them so many times a week. Um, Mary Gelhoff is one, um Mrs. Peterson is another one. Um I mean I see them and I run into them all the time. And I said, didn't you leave yet? We only require two hours, two hours of your time a week to come in and provide services to the students of the Literacy Council. But you have some tutors um, that just are totally engaged, totally committed, and they come in multiple times a week because either they are retired or they have that passion that everyone has at the Literacy Council.
0: Hmm. So you have a very big event uh, coming up that you are excited to uh, tell us about.
2: Yes. Yes. over the last couple of years, we've had this uh, moniker that we have. It's called open the, Opening the Door to Education. It's kind of like our hashtag. And so our last couple of major fundraising events have been called the Open Door Event. Uh, we have this one on March 21st, Saturday at Memorial Hall. And it's from uh, 530 to 830 p.m. Uh, we have our keynote speaker is actually uh, Mayor Corey Mason. Uh, we're excited about that. And then we have entertainment um, via the Madison's Piano Dueling Pianos. Ah, fun. Yeah.
0: So uh, if people are interested in
2: attending that, what do they need to do? Um, they can uh, go to our website, which is www.raceneliteracy.com. Um, we've had banners and posters, fly, flyers throughout the city. Um, and they can also call the Racing Literacy Council at 262. 262- 632 for additional information.
0: Very good. A last question. Uh, for somebody who is in need of your services, uh, is it just a matter of walking through the door or picking up the phone, or is there something else involved in terms of being able to access the, uh, the various uh, offerings of the Literacy Council?
2: Uh, Greg, you actually nailed it. Coming through the door and picking up the phone, that's the easiest way to get in touch with someone from the Literacy Council to find out what services are available to you and what time slots are available.
0: Very good. Steve Musenden is the Executive Director of the Racine Literacy Council. It's a very, very busy place and doing very, very good work in our community. Steve, thank you for stopping by.
2: Thank you, Greg, for having me.
0: And the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show are going to be spent with an important topic, that of colorectal cancer and uh, what people should be thinking about in terms of being properly screened and what sorts of of new developments there have been as uh, medical science continues to uh, combat this really serious form of cancer. My guest is Dr. Mike Pico, who is at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, a gastroenterologist there, an associate professor of medicine and chair of the gastroenterology and hepatology department. Uh, Dr. Pico, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you for having me. Good to be uh, talking with you. How serious a problem are we talking about in terms of colorectal cancer? How does it compare to other kinds of cancers, both in terms of the suffering that it causes and uh, to what extent this is something that uh, proves to be fatal?
3: It's a leading cause for cancer death in the United States, and it's very preventable with appropriate screening and follow-up. And it does cause a lot of morbidity, a lot of suffering in patients who develop it.
0: Uh, We used to talk about colon cancer. Now more often we hear it referred to as colorectal cancer. Is there any particular reason for that slight shift in terminology?
3: Not really. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it should be looked at as the same. It's involving the colon, meaning starting from the lower end, the anus, all the way around the entire colon. What that term encompasses
0: so in other words we've gravitated to what amounts to a more uh, a more correct or more specific term because uh, yeah this cancer can involve uh, that 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 whole part of the body and uh, all that is associated with it uh, my understanding is that at least in general people seem to be reluctant to be screened for this I mean maybe more reluctant than uh, than makes sense uh, to, to what extent is this a significant problem?
3: Well, it's a big problem, I think, and it really is to do with the types of uh, tests that are available. And you know, They really are broken down into three areas. The first are stool tests, and the stool tests are non-invasive, meaning no testing, no one, nothing has to be done other than checking the stool. But as you imagine, people don't like to manipulate their stool and provide stool samples. There's some uh, resistance there. The other test, for example, the uh, CT colonography, or what is it called virtual colonoscopy, is a radiographic test. That one is also requires time away from work and, and so forth. And then there's colonoscopy, which is a more invasive test where you actually put a scope in and people need to take a half a day, need to do a considerable colon prep, and have to be sedated for that procedure, taking time from work and so forth. So there are barriers that are out there for screening, and also there is kind of some misperceptions uh, in, the, in the community about screening as well. For example, colonoscopy has a bad rap, and uh, it really is, I think, undeserved. Definitely an invasive test, but typically the most difficult part about colonoscopy is the prep. Most people who undergo the procedure you know, with the sedation and the techniques that are involved will often forget that they even had it and typically go through the procedure very well.
0: Mm. What determines which of these types of screenings is most appropriate for a given patient, or does it really not matter patient to patient what kind of screening they undergo?
3: It depends. It's a conversation with the individual and their physician. We know that people who are at high risk uh, really should have colonoscopy and high risk meaning patients who've had a family history of colon cancer, particularly colon cancer that's developed in some, a family member who's a first-degree relative, meaning a parent, a sibling, or a child before the age of 60, or they have multiple relatives with colon cancer or what we call advanced polyps, large polyps. Those patients do better with colonoscopy because the risk of finding something like a polyp is, is higher, and at colonoscopy, the polyp could be removed at the time of the exam. For people we call of average risk who don't have that history, um, those folks uh, do better with different ones based on the conversation between them and their physician. Some people will opt for stool-based testing, other with CT colonography, other with colonoscopy, and each of these has its drawbacks. I think the main message, though, is to get is to have that conversation with your provider, healthcare provider, and get screened.
0: How frequent should screenings be, and does that the answer to that question uh, change uh, with a person's age?
3: The frequency depends upon the type of test that's used. If you do what's called the FIT test, which is a fecal immunochemical testing, which tests for uh, part of blood called hemoglobin, that's a stool-based test that's done yearly. Now, if you use what's called the fecal uh, FIT test, fecal chemical test with the DNA testing, which is known as Cologuard, that's one that's done every three years. If you opt for the test that uses CT scanning or CT colonography, that's every five years. And if you opt for colonoscopy, that's every 10 years. Now, these intervals presume that you're not having any symptoms and that the initial test that was done was negative, meaning you're still being screened. If you're developing symptoms, and have active symptoms uh, that could suggest colon cancer that need to be addressed accordingly and would not be considered screening.
0: Right. And I want to ask you about symptoms in a moment. Uh, can you tell us more about uh, this Cologuard test? I understand that the the Mayo Clinic had a hand in its uh, development. In what way is this different from uh, other kinds of colon cancer screenings that existed before?
3: Well, the first is it's it's based on two components. The first is the fecal immunochemical testing, which checks for the hemoglobin or the blood component. But also it looks at a particular characteristic of polyps and colon cancers, which is abnormal DNA or genetic material. These cancers shed this material into the stool, and the test actually can pick this up. And by picking it up, it increases the sensitivity, meaning the ability to find colon cancers and polyps much higher compared to a standard fit or standard hemoglobin-based test to check the stool. Hmm.
0: You yourself mentioned that, uh, that, that the interval between screenings is uh, with the assumption that somebody is not demonstrating the kind of symptoms that are often associated with the onset of colorectal cancer. What are the symptoms that people should be paying the most attention to?
3: Well, the symptoms mainly really consist of common ones would be rectal bleeding, any type of rectal bleeding. Often patients will attribute that to, for example, hemorrhoids or other findings that they consider that may be benign, but any rectal bleeding is significant, and that needs to be discussed with a physician. Other issues have to do with change in bowel habits, any type of change in bowel habits, particularly constipation, abdominal pain, weight loss, these sorts of symptoms.
0: When somebody is experiencing uh, blood, um, what is exactly happening in the colon or the rectum that is causing that excessive amount of blood to be present in the first place? What's, what's going on there?
3: Well, it really depends on the reason. Like you said, I mean, the blood can be as simple as just bleeding hemorrhoids that patients will have to, to polyps, to colon cancer, to other conditions as well, such as inflammatory conditions of the colon that develop that lead to bleeding as well bleeding can be painless or with pain. So depending on that, the what we call the differential or the list of potential possibilities grows. But in my area, we have to think is what's the most dangerous consequence to the patient related to rectal bleeding? And of course, the most dangerous consequence typically is colon cancer. So we have to be looking to exclude that.
0: So is it that there is the presence of... of polyps or tumors or whatever in the colon and that somehow the colon itself is becoming inflamed and that's what causes this excessive amount of blood that then appears in one's stool or, 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 or urine?
3: No, actually it has to do with the polyps themselves. It's not so much the inflammation, but the polyps, as they grow, have a tendency to bleed. Ah. And the larger they get, the more tendency they bleed and certainly colon cancers are, are the most likely to bleed. So the idea is that you want to catch it. We know in colon cancer it starts, we believe it starts with development of polyps, and that polyp then grows into cancer over time. We think that the average time it takes for a polyp then then from its start to develop cancer is about 10 years. And the larger the polyp gets, the more likely it is to bleed. So the idea behind screening is you want to catch this early, before it starts to bleed, because when it starts to bleed, you're more likely dealing with what we would call an advanced lesion or even a colon cancer, and the goal, of course, is to stop that or find those polyps early to remove them.
0: Hmm. Assuming that uh, someone has not been screened as they should be or for whatever reason colon cancer is, is missed and is then found to be present, uh, how treatable, generally speaking, is colorectal cancer?
3: It depends upon the stage and the stage has to do with the tumor itself, where it is in the colon in terms of they start typically on the wall of the colon and then with time the tumor can penetrate through the wall of the colon and then eventually can actually go through the wall to the surrounding tissues and the lymph nodes and then even move on to the liver and other organs and the ability to treat is related to the stage. Superficial colon cancers that are just localized to the lining are very treatable. But of course those who had more we call metastases and such are are much less treatable. Right. So that's really again the idea behind screening.
0: I appreciate uh, the information that you have uh, shared here. Uh, Is there a means by which people can get more information through the Mayo Clinic about what we've talked about?
3: Yes you can go to the Mayo Clinic sites, mayo.edu and mayo.com are great sites. All those sites are excellent and of course There's lots of good information out there through Centers for Disease Control and the NIH and so forth as well.
0: Very good. Dr. Mike Pico, a gastroenterologist with the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Dr. Pico, thank you so much for your time.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me today.
0: In this portion of WGTD's morning show, we're going to be talking about the escalating challenges faced by the U.S. military when it comes to recruitment. Of course, it was back in 1973 that the draft was abolished and replaced by an all-volunteer military. And in recent years, it has become more difficult for all branches of the military to attract qualified candidates. There are a number of reasons for that. Recently, the uh, US Department of Defense commissioned uh, a study by CNA, a nonprofit research and analysis organization. In Washington DC. I had the opportunity to speak with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Cleland who is senior research scientist and economist at CNA uh, who was uh, one of the leaders in the study that was recently completed on this important topic. So explain what the most significant factors are right now in terms of limiting the size of the potential recruitment pool for our military is it there are is it that there are a fewer number of people in that age group or are there other factors that are also shrinking that pool of eligible candidates
4: so the 17 to 24 population has remained relatively stable over the past 10 years in terms of the size of the population. But it's the whether or not they're qualified for military service that's been shrinking the pool. So recruiters are limited by whom they can bring into the service by various physical, moral, and mental aptitude requirements. So things like medical issues, obesity are, is increasing in the youth population, which is increasing the number of applicants disqualified for service.
0: And we see those numbers just going up in ways that that, uh, uh, apparently should cause us some alarm. I mean, for a number of reasons, but but, uh, today what we're talking about is how it is, in a sense, ruling out many young people who might otherwise be qualified for and might otherwise be interested in a career in the military.
4: Correct. Only about 29% of youth in the 17 to 24-year-old population meet the requirements on the surface without a waiver. And if you consider those then who are going straight to college after high school, that number dwindles down to about 17% of the youth population. And then if you take into account the awareness of the military or the likelihood and interest someone's going to join, that pool shrinks even further to about two to 3% of the youth population. So recruiters are working in a very tight market when they're trying to convince, um, youth to join the service.
0: Right. And of course it's also an environment in which, uh Unemployment rates, at least in, in many places, are relatively low. I should think that is also a, a discouraging factor as well.
4: Right. It's The research has shown over the years that when unemployment rates fall, it's going to be harder and harder to recruit people to the military because they're going to have more civilian job opportunities. Out there. And so, and then you also have youth, like I said, going to college at greater rates than they have in the past.
0: Right. And of course, amongst the entire population, we all seem to have uh, less awareness in general of the military and the nature of what it means to be a part of the military. I mean, fewer and fewer of us have people in our own lives and our own inner circles who are part of the military. So it just goes without saying that uh, uh, more and more young people do not have the kind of awareness that they might otherwise have of what it means to be part of the military. What is your advice for America's military in terms of trying to go after this shrinking pool? Are they making mistakes that they need to fix, and are there other ways in which they need to alter their tactics?
4: I wouldn't say that any mistakes are being made. I would just say it's becoming more and more difficult, like you say, to communicate the benefits of service when there's fewer role models in the community that have served in the military. Only about 15% of youth today have a parent who has served compared to 40% in 1995. So the recruiter's job is really to communicate those intangible benefits of service like service to country, honor, courage, commitment, and the tangible benefits like compensation, benefits of health care, money for college, and things like skills training so that's really the job of the recruiter is to make sure the youth are aware of those benefits
0: hmm. uh, is there a place where people can get more information on some of the findings of cna and their study of this uh important issue
4: yes so we will be releasing this por- this report that has been commissioned by the office of the secretary of defense this week um and you will be able to find that report at cna.org posted on the home page
0: very good Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Cleland is a senior researcher and scientist and economist at CNA. Thank you so much for your time.
4: Thank you for having me. Have a great day. Bye-bye.